EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Oya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is April 20th, and I talk to William Killer, a professor of international relations and history at Boston University. Yes, I'm Bill Keeler. I'm a professor of international relations and history at the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. Can you tell us a little bit about your connection to Europe? Yes, well, I first went to Europe while I was a junior at Stanford University in their uh, overseas campus program, and I fell in love with the continent. I traveled, we traveled around, it was actually in France, but we did a lot of traveling. And then later I went to Columbia University for my graduate work and got a Fulbright Fellowship and went to Paris and spent a year there and traveled around a lot. Uh, and uh, ever since then, I've been many times going back to Europe. I was a visiting professor at Sciences Po in, in Paris and uh, worked in, in London. So uh, I'm sort of transatlantic person, and I teach courses on my particular area of interest is European-American relations relations between Western Europe and the United States. What is the future emerging in Europe? I think it's a very, very, uh, uh, a future that is difficult to predict. I really do. If you had interviewed me two years ago, I would have had something much more substantive to say. But uh, right now, I think that there are a lot of question marks out there. Uh, The Brexit vote was a tremendous blow, I think to the European Union. Uh, The French elections are coming up, and if there is a Frexit, if Marine Le Pen wins the presidency uh, and continues to press for withdrawal from uh, Europe, uh, from the European Union, then I think that will be the, uh, the nail in the coffin of the European Union. I say that because the European Union initially was pretty much a French idea. I'm a historian, and I go way back to the end of World War II when Jean Monnet and Robert Schumann and others, uh, other French officials decided that in order to prevent a World War III, we've got to unify Europe, and particularly so that France and Germany will not go after each other the way they did in the last two world wars. So uh, I I do think that... uh, This election coming up in France is critical to the answer to the question that you just asked. If Marine Le Pen, Front National, is defeated, then I think things look better for Europe. And of course, uh, Theresa May called this snap election in Britain, and depending on how that comes out, uh, it seems as though there is the possibility, will be the possibility of those things uh, develop uh, to recover from, the, from the, the body blow that was delivered by the British. What's your vision of European integration, given all the changes that have happened during the 
past two years that you just talked about. Yeah. So what's 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 your vision of the yes. European integration? Well, I'm sure you have heard this phrase many times in your interviews, but the big problem here is what they call the democratic deficit, by which they mean that the authorities in Brussels lack the support of uh, of voters in each of the member states. So uh, that's going to be a big problem to try to reestablish a sense of identity and a sense of faith in the concept of European Union, and more important than that really is the institutions of European Union. I'll also say, as I'm sure you're well aware, that there has been this emergence of populist movements in a number of European countries. And uh, it's interesting because when you talk about the democratic deficit or democracy as being the, uh, the goal of, uh, of Europe, uh, populism is at least allegedly supposed to stand for the rights of the people. Uh, but in fact, what's happened uh, because of the serious economic crisis that most, not all, but most of the European countries have experienced is that, uh, is that these sort of demagogues have emerged uh, on the right that represent themselves as populists, as fighting for the interests of the people. So it's difficult if you believe in democracy, if democracy is one of the defining characteristics of membership in the European Union, it's written right into the uh, Constitution, then uh, it's difficult to argue that if people vote in uh, pe uh, people who want to withdraw from the European Union or want to radically transform it, it's difficult to argue against that if you believe in democracy. Why do you think we see a rise in populism and also rise in rise of the extremes, particularly on the right, less on the left, but particularly on the right? Why do you think is this happening? And do you see it as a threat to democracy? Well, I think there are two reasons, and one the most important by far, and that is the economic difficulties of a number of European countries. And I will subtract from that Germany and Austria they're doing fine economically. But uh, Spain and Greece and uh, the countries of Eastern Europe or Central Europe, uh, and even France, you know, France has about 10% unemployment, uh, and that is really very difficult to deal with because when you're out of work, you are susceptible to the appeals of populists, of demagogues. Uh, and when the demagogue or the populist says, the reason that you're out of work is because of foreigners coming in and taking your job, uh, that is a very powerful argument. Now, in the case of France, which is the country that I know the best, the initial populist appeals were directed not at Muslim refugees, that's much more recent, but going back a, couple, a decade or so, it was it was people coming from Eastern Europe. Plombier Polonais, the Polish plumber, is going to take your job. Uh, and so that, that, that appeals to people who want to close the borders, 
who want to ab abandon the Schengen Agreement and who not, do not want to have the free flow of people, the free flow of labor, because it jeopardizes their very existence. Now, that's a, a big part of it. Other part of it is identity. The fact that uh, people in Britain or France uh, and other countries in the European Union uh, develop a sense of national identity and it's a powerful force. And when you fear that that identity is going to be threatened or jeopardized by immigrants coming in who do not share your values, and this is particularly true of the refugees coming from, uh, from the Middle East, uh, they don't have your religion, they don't have your dress styles, and so you feel that your it has nothing to do really with jobs, but it's your identity as an English person or as a French person or a Belgian uh, inundated uh, by people who are so totally different from you in so many ways. Do you see the rising nationalism as a threat to democracy across Europe? Well, I think the rise of democracy, uh, the rise of nationalism, excuse me, is a threat to the whole concept of European integration. When you go way back to the end of World War II, the whole point of creating what was originally the European coal and steel community and the European economic community and so forth, uh, in the minds of people like Jean Monnet, was to gradually, not overnight, but gradually uh, reduce the, the, the policy and the, and the ideas of nationalism and getting people to realize that they're Europeans, they're not just Belgians or Dutch or French or British or what have you. Uh, that's in jeopardy now. I think that really is, is threatened. And again, I keep com coming back to that French election. As I say, France was essentially the creator of the, what became the European Union. And the reason for doing that in the original formulation was we, we cannot afford another war on the continent. We have to find a way of reducing nationalism and emphasizing uh, European identity. Uh, and that's worked. It's, it's been a great success. There has not been a third world war in Europe. Uh, but right now what we're seeing is the resurgence of this. Now with regard to democracy, again, I come back to that thing about populism. You know, the term people's uh, government, people's republic has been used. How about the People's Republic of China? Hardly a democracy. The people's democracies in Eastern Europe during the Cold War. These were not democracies, but they used the term peoples because uh, of this attraction to the idea that uh, the people uh, will rule. Well, in Western Europe now, most of the countries, I'll say Hungary and Poland are a little questionable here, are really democracies. That is, you have the rule of law, uh, you have elections that are contested freely, contested elections and so forth. But if you allow a demagogue to take power, that threatens that. But the demagogue will take power in the name of democracy, in the name of people's rights. That's a great irony. We see this gap between European institutions, European officials and ordinary citizens across Europe. So we know they have the right to go and 
participate in local elections, in Europe, European parliamentary elections. Right. But do you see they have other tools of affecting political processes at the, trans, at the transnational level? It's very difficult, I think. Uh, you have a European Commission, you have a European Parliament, they're in place, they're organized, but just imagine if this were the European Parliament right now we were sitting in, and you would have all different languages spoken, uh, and there is, was, isn't the sense of identity, of, of cooperation that you would get uh, in a national parliament. Uh, and, and so it just is a tremendous challenge to overcome that age-old, centuries-old uh, tradition of nationalism and national identity and to try to replace that with a sense of European identity. There has been a lot of, there have been successes in that. They've gone a long way, particularly in the economic field. But when it comes to the political field, uh, much, much more work needs to be done. There's another issue that I, you, you didn't ask, but I wanna, would like to throw in here, which is an area of particular interest of mine, and that is the whole concept of European defense cooperation. That was my next question. Oh, good, perfectly, I'm reading your mind. Yes. Okay, so uh, in 1950, the original six of the European uh, economic community, the European coal and steel community, uh, uh, came up with the idea of a European defense community. Originally, we, like everything, Jean Monnet was the originator of it. He was the one that wrote it. René Plevanu, as the prime minister, actually put it forth. And uh, the idea was, we are beginning to recover from the devastation of World War II, so we should have our own army. And the uh, idea was a European army. They would wear European uniforms. They would have a European anthem. It was part of the whole concept of European integration. It failed in 1954. The French, who originated it, defeated it. And ever since then, there has been a hopeless effort, a series of hopeless efforts to establish a European army. Uh, there was the Franco-German Brigade, the Europe, European Army Corps, the Western European Union. These are all, you know, ideas that nobody thinks about today, but they were failed attempts to create a European army. Then, after the end of the Cold War, there was a renewal, renewal, a renewal of interest in this, and the uh, European uh, security and defense policy was proclaimed it has gone nowhere, absolutely nowhere. Now, at the same time, you're beginning to see some, uh, maybe I'll use the word resentment, in the United States about the fact that Western Europe, or all of Europe now, really, uh, which has a gross domestic product and a population approaching that of the United States, in some places, uh, uh, larger than that, depending on the United States to defend it, depending on American taxpayers to finance uh, NATO uh, forces, and depending, if need be, on American soldiers, um, men and women, to go and protect Europe. There's a long history of resentment of that, going back really to the 
very beginning of the end of the Second World War. Why can't Europe defend itself? Why does it have to defend, depend on Uncle Sam? Relationship with Russia, I mean, ah. we're coming to the most important question probably. We see that the relationship with Russia ha has become worse and worse over the past few years. Do you think, and many European experts kind of fear that Russia can attack Eastern European countries. Mm -hmm. Do you see this can become a signal of indeed creating a common European army or a more coherent security and defense policy? Yes, I uh, have thought that for a couple of years um, because quite honestly, even before Donald Trump was elected, there were a lot of people in the United States who were saying it's time for the EU to take over its own defense. Not, not, these were not extremists, but very respected political scientists and so forth. Time for you to take over. Uh, and uh, then uh, Trump, of course, uh, announcing the same thing, that NATO was obsolete and the Europeans are not paying their fair share, etc. And yet, I have not really seen any concrete efforts on the part of uh, the European Union to respond to that. There have been talk about a European army, there have been uh, lots of discussions and negotiations, but it doesn't exist. Now, you mentioned Russia. I don't have an inside uh, connection to Mr. Putin, so I don't know what his... Uh, what his ambitions are, but certainly he is interested in, as we put it, pushing the envelope. That is, expanding into what they used to call the near broad, right? Uh, in Georgia, for example, Ukraine, former Soviet socialist republics, right? Uh, and when there wasn't a real pushback against that, uh, then he probably got the message, well, uh, the Europeans aren't going to be able to do anything about that. And what, I'm just guessing, this is his analysis, what American mother would be willing to say, sure, my son or daughter uh, can go to war with Russia to defend Latvia. Where is Latvia? It, it, it's not in our area of interest. So my suspicion is that he's push, pushing and pressing to see what the Europeans will do and what the United States would do if he does encroach on the sovereignty, for example, of the three Baltic states. I think that's the next, the next challenge. And my last question is about your, your vision. What kind of Europe are you dreaming about? I guess I'm dreaming about a Europe uh, that I knew when I was a young graduate student and, and young, young professor. Let's not sell Europe short. Europe is a, a part of the globe that really does enjoy democratic self-government, free markets roughly, and most important of all, the rule of law, the fact that uh, the courts are able to adjudicate uh, disputes and they don't, they don't kowtow to, to the government. That's a very rare thing in the world, a very rare thing to have the rule of law. And Western Europe and then Eastern Europe, 
after the end of the Cold War, adopted the rule of law, democratic uh, elections, and so forth. So I think that's worth celebrating and saying, boy, Europe is doing very well. Now there are economic problems that we know about, particularly in Southern Europe, uh, Spain, above all, Greece, but to a certain extent, Italy as well. Uh, but uh, apart from that, I think Europe is doing fine. Let's not forget that. There has not been a war. Well, the war in the Balkans is an exception to that, I guess you might say, but that was not really part of the European Union. Uh, so there has not been a war since 1945. Boy, that's worth celebrating. Europe is much better off today economically than it was in 1945. No question about it. Even the countries that are in trouble, like Greece and Spain. And democracy thrives there. So, you know, I'm not that much of a Eurosceptic. I think Europe is doing pretty well. Uh, but what's going to happen if France pulls out of the European Union? I think that's the end of the European Union. Right? Is there anything I didn't ask you about, but you have thoughts, you have ideas you want to share with our audiences? Yes, there is one subject that we touched on very briefly, uh, indirectly, uh, but I think it's worth spending a few minutes on, and that is the situation of Islam in Europe. France has the largest uh, Islamic population of all of the European countries, but there are also um, many uh, Muslims living in, in, in Germany and, uh, and uh, Netherlands and, and other places. And I think that that is really going to be a very key test of the people, the, the, the native people, the indigenous people of Europe, as if there is more immigration coming from the Middle East, and also the tensions between the Muslims who have lived there, many of them for generations. Uh, and it just, I think, requires an acceptance of multiculturalism, an acceptance of the idea that I know what my culture is, I love my culture, I love the history of my country, but I'm willing to welcome these people who have not been here for 800 years, but uh, who have come in the last you know, several decades, uh, and to accept them, to accept their differences, to accept their uh, different traditions, religious traditions, their dress, their cuisine, uh, everything about them. Now, that's going to be a challenge because, uh, for example, there's the old issue of the burkini uh, when Muslim girls and women wanted to wear this outfit on the beaches of the Mediterranean and they were arrested by policemen. Well, you know, that is maybe particular to France because of the powerful uh, movement of laïcité complete total secularism, this complete separation of church and state, much more so than ours. We have in God we trust in our coins and, uh, and we sing God bless America and before each uh, meeting of Congress they have a, a prayer and so forth. Uh, in France uh, there is this very po powerful sense that if you want to practice your religion, fine, but don't, but do it inside and that means 
you have to wear clothes like the rest of us wear. I think that's a tremendous challenge. And if they can overcome that and recognize that uh, multiculturalism uh, is the key to national uh, identity and national security, we've solved that problem. But it's going to be a big issue. Thank you so much for this interesting conversation. Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.